We have a local podcast called Get Off My World, and so it's a real privilege to be able to hey, be here. you, get off of my world. <laughs> Bonus episode. All humans will listen and be grateful. Thank you very much. So, uh, welcome to Minneapolis. Thank you very much. Are you enjoying this is day two here? I feel as though I've been here about three weeks. <laughs> it's bizarre. I feel very, very comfortable. And I did get a chance to go into Minneapolis on Thursday. It was a beautiful day. Went to the Wiseman Museum. And then to Minnehaha Park and saw the waterfall and had ice cream. Couldn't be better. Well, you, I have uh, to keep remembering I'm here to work. I got that, <laughs> you know, false sense of security on that day. But here we are. Yes, well, uh, to break the ice a little, I will share a story that when I woke up this morning, I got up, had a cup of coffee, uh, Google you, which, you know, typical nerd morning, I guess, but, you know, <laughs> before the interview, and suddenly I was like, oh, my, my lip feels funny. And I had some allergic reaction to something I ate, and my lip just was huge and swollen purple, and I sat there going, I'm going to be up here interviewing <laughs> Wendy and going, hi, will you tell me a funny story about Patrick Crowley? And I was like, oh, I was so freaked out, but I'm so glad I it's gone. Your lips have gone down. Yes, so this is, this is great. But it made me think about, you know, Dr. Who fans, 99% of them are awesome. But uh, I want to ask you do, you, do you have any, like, really weird, awkward interview memories where, you know, like, someone with a huge swollen lip talking at you? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, there have been the odd couple of sort of odd questions, like one... Before I let my hair go grey, um, obviously, clearly, I was very dark-haired in Doctor Who, naturally dark-haired. Um, be but before I let it go grey, um, I used to colour my hair. You know, and uh, I got a question about, somebody said, is that dye in your hair? And I sort of went, yeah, but... I'm not sure what that's got to do with Doctor That's quite personal, actually. Yeah, clearly, look at my photo from way back. Look at me now. Yes, it's done. What can I say? Um, so that was an odd one. But on the whole, no, I haven't had any... Um, I've been very lucky, I think. Good, yeah. good. I'm, I'm glad you've no weird swollen lip issues here today. Um, yeah. So, what I wanted to ask you about was kind of starting in chronological order here, what it was like to audition for the role of Zoe back in the 60s. And Doctor Who was still really, really popular initially, only had a couple years behind it. Um, but I assume there had to be tons of people auditioning for this. Uh, there were tons of people. Um, of course, as a young actress at that point, uh, it was it was one of a few interviews. I had an interview at the same time for the film of the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And that happened pretty much in the same two weeks as uh, Doctor Who. And um, so I went to, or clearly went to both interviews. The film was a less arduous interview than Doctor Who, actually, um, because there were lots and lots of initial meetings for Doctor Who, and then they would draw up some sort of shortlist, and you'd go back, have another meeting, and then there was another shortlist, and uh, back again. 
And then the final, I think, was down to six of us. One of whom was Fraser's girlfriends at the time. I didn't know that then. <laughs> I've learned that since. Um, so how thrilled he was that I got the job and she didn't, I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm not going to ask him, though. Um, so then, the, yeah, there were six of us, and we were sent a script of dialogue uh, to learn. It, uh, just a page. And it was a different, just one sentence, six, four or five sentences, where each sentence was a different emotion. And so when you went into the studio, you were given a, a spot to stand on, and uh, you just had to do, and the camera just showed your eyes. Yeah, I'm sure we all had the same. Um, and it was absolutely terrifying. So one line was, you know, jokey, so your eyes would be a bit twinkly. Next one, was, you'd be crying, saying something, and so, and so on, angry. You know, um, and I'm very glad afterwards that actually the camera was so close up because my knees were knocking <laughs> terribly. Uh, so that was the that was that, and then it was after that final interview that I learned I got the job, and about two days later I got the film as well. Oh! So then I had to decide what to do. Oh! And it was I had you know a film Prime Minister Brody that's going to be. Maggie Smith, that's going to be... Yeah. Um, do I do that? Do I do that? Or... But then it's Doctor Who. That's exciting. And I think I drove my agent at the, at the time absolutely potty because I'd phone up in the morning and say, I've made a decision, I'm going to do the film. She'd go, right, right. And then an hour later I'd say, you haven't made a phone call, have you? Because I've changed my mind. I want to do Doctor Who. No, I want to do Doctor Who. I'm definitely going to do Doctor Who. And that's what I, well, the rest is history. And I'm very, very pleased that I did. Yeah. Okay. Although the film was great. It was a really lovely film. Yeah, we're all very happy you made that choice. So, uh, now, in this day and age, when a companion is cast, it's just a huge announcement. Everyone is in suspense. I mean, how, how was it announced uh, that you were going to be the companion? How did it... Well, it was a little more low-key. Yeah, than it I would guess. It was just announced, and then it, but it was in the, it, it went into all the newspapers, and then BBC did a photo shoot, and then all their photos were sent round to all the newspapers. So there was up the articles in pretty much every newspaper that the new companion was going to be. Um, so yeah, it was it was noted, but it wasn't as secretive as it is now, and um, as big. So you didn't have people wanting to interview you ahead of time, like before you'd even no. been on screen? No. No, none of that. So, uh, from what I understand, working with Patrick Trout and, and uh, Fraser Hines was pretty dull, serious business. Nothing, uh, nothing much happened. Uh, it was really awful. It was so dull. No, it, was, it was amazing. Uh, you know, daunting to go in and take over from Debbie, um, as every companion, I'm sure, feels exactly the same taking over from someone that's become, you know, popular, loved by the, or by the fans, and, and then you have, you have to try and make your own, the character your own. Um, it is very, very daunting. Um, you rely a lot on writing. I think I was quite lucky in as much as Zoe was so completely different. Uh, than Victoria, mm -hmm. um, and so, and also she was a strong, 
quite feisty, slightly arrogant girl. Um, so she was great to play. So, it, 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 you know, I wasn't coming in as a, another girl in a crinoline, you know, poor old Debbie, <laughs> having to work in a crinoline. Yeah, but you, it, it's pretty daunting taking over. Did you know much about the character description uh, when you were auditioning for who Zoe would be? Uh, not until towards the end, um, before I started. It was round about that last interview. You got you had a little breakdown of the of the actual character. It was then I discovered that she was an astrophysicist, bright, um, you know, girl. So it wasn't until that moment. Yeah, well, watching these stories now, I, I think. Jamie and Zoe and the Second Doctor feel really modern as characters and as a dynamic, and, and most of that I think has to do with Zoe being smart and not easily frightened, and often the male is put in the, the, the sort of role where he doesn't know what's going on, and Jamie's asking all the questions, and you know everything. Um, well, we, of course, we were partly there to, the companions are partly there to ask the questions of the Doctor, the questions that the audience would ask should they be with the doctor, and that was a, partly our role was to, to ask these questions. Um, it was just that Zoe was infuriated by the doctor and his uh, lack of intelligence, as she thought. Um, that you know, that's how she. I think that's why she was so different. Yeah. When you see any of the modern series and you see some of these new companions, um, do you see some of Zoe in them? Um, no, I haven't actually, only because I think it is so different now. I mean, I've got a, fav a favourite modern, when I say from, you know, from Chris Eccleston's era, companion, and that's Billy Piper. I absolutely loved Rose, and I was envious of her because I, 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 don't know, I don't know why quite, whether it was because it was so modern, it was so real, it was so real. I think that's, that's what I liked. She wasn't an astrophysicist, you know, she was a real girl and, I, and, and got involved in these adventures and I really liked that. Um, and she, she's definitely my favourite. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it, it's just so different. It's yeah. so, so different. Well, I mean, for a start off, when I first saw it, I went, is that the TARDIS? I have real TARDIS <laughs> envy because it was huge. And ours was this tiny little box, and there was this massive TARDIS. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought, I, I want one of those. Why, why didn't we have one of those? A TARDIS like that, I would have yeah. loved. The old one was slightly bigger on the inside. <laughs> yeah, 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 slightly. <laughs> so you say the modern one felt so so modern, and I think part of that is Billy Piper could have a more naturalistic performance because the, the TV has changed a lot. Because yeah. you guys were essentially doing theater in front of the camera, we right? Absolutely. You memorized, you did, you performed entire scenes. You wouldn't do five lines, cut, five lines, right? I mean, people are always shocked and say, you know, how did we learn our lines? Well, it wasn't exactly, it wasn't difficult. It wasn't hard work, but it was just different. And we did shoot it. And I think you've probably heard us all say over this weekend at some point that we started at the beginning and finished at the end. And it was like doing a play. 
Um, and and that, that's the way television was done then. A lot of rehearsal and then a, a proper hour and a half we had in which to record the entire episode. That's the way it was. And then this rehearsed record came in uh, way after I'd left Doctor Who, which is a completely different system of, of working and one that, I don't know, for some things I guess is, is quite good, but other, for other programmes, I like this starting at the beginning. You get the adrenaline going, and, it, and that can, just like a theatre play, and that finishes when the, when the play finishes or when your recording of that episode finishes, and I rather like that way of working. Rehearse, record, you can go completely out of order. I, I, when I was an agent, I had a client, two or three clients who were in a long-running series called The Bill, uh, a police series. Um, I don't know how they did it because they used to have units and if I ever I wanted one of my clients and, and I'd phone up and ask to speak to him, um, he, they'd say, oh, he's, he's with Blue Unit today, we'll get him to call you. And he'd be going from unit to unit doing a little scene from lots of different scripts lots of different episodes and then going back and doing I don't know how they did that 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 to me that to me sounds like hard work how you can remember what you were doing in that episode and what you did in that scene just the, the emotional continuity all that continuity I don't know I just don't know how they did it they did a brilliant job I think because it was such a different way of shooting a story it also meant the stories had to be told at a different pace so I always find it interesting when you go to these conventions and you see so many young people who are into the classic series because it does ask you to kind of step back in time and understand the way TV used to be made. Um, are, are you uh, impressed to see like someone who's 15 years old dressed as Zoe? Or I'm completely a flattered. It's such a compliment, but be yes, impressed because I always ask. How, who they started watching Doctor Who with, and it will either be, you know, David Tennant or uh, what's not to love about any, any well, never mind. Um, <laughs> David Tennant or, or Chris or whoever, um, and then having become hooked on the program, then go back and find that they love that too. And there's a lot of dumbing down in television these days, and people that make programs seem to think that young people aren't prepared to watch anything in, A, in black and white. They think that they're not going to watch that because it's not going to, it's not going to appeal to them. Which is an absolute nonsense, you know. I ask people what they want to watch. I always get infuriated in the UK when they say they're going to repeat um, Doctor Who from the beginning. And they start from John Pertwee when it went into colour. And that's what they consider to be the beginning. I find that bizarre. Really, really yeah. bizarre. Yeah, well, I mean, the black and white adds a lot of atmosphere. I think so. it, is a, it sometimes actually hides a lot of uh, low budget things. It looks better than some of those early colors. We certainly did that. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, we did have quite a few wobbly sets. But um, yeah, it did. You know, and you have to be more. You know, the sets were fairly badly painted at times. Having said that, the actual design of the, some of the sets was amazing yeah. for its time. 
Uh, Fraser was telling a story about the London Underground, and I don't know whether you ever, whether you saw the clips that he played the other night, but that London Underground that they built did look absolutely identical to the London Underground. It looked like a location. It looked amazing. Now that probably would have looked pretty ghastly in colour, but in black and white, that looked absolutely amazing. They did a good job, you know, a really good job then. Yeah, I think with the DVDs out, especially with they're finding more lost episodes, it gets a lot of attention on uh, your era of the show. And so I think it is an exciting discovery for younger fans to go yeah. back and find those. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you're going back and watching some of these, like uh, doing DVD commentary, um, are you ever... I guess a two-part question: Are you ever like surprised at like how good something looks, or also those moments where oh, I wish I could have had a second take? Yeah. I wish I dropped a swear in there so they. <laughs> yeah. So they had to. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those. Yeah. Um, one of the stories I remember in my head for some reason, perhaps not being particularly good, was the invasion. And then when I went to do the commentary, I thought, actually, this is a marvelous story beautifully acted, beautifully directed, and with the most amazing cast, and a really, really good story. But in my head, that had been a weaker, a weaker story. Um, and of course, the inevitable of, um, in Mind Robber, where I throw the carcass over my shoulder, that was the only time ever that I asked if we could do that again. And they said no. It looked fine. And to this day, when I and whenever I see it, I think, oh no, 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 no. It does look terrible. It really does. Look, it's funny. It shouldn't be funny. <laughs> it's clear that he throws himself over my shoulder. In fact, I'm still going that way, and he's gone that way. It's obvious that I didn't throw him over my shoulder. It's and the I land of fiction, that, though. We can. I know, but it, felt, it just felt uncomfortable and wrong. But they would not let me do it again. Down, all down to money, I guess. Was it? You talk about the invasion. Was it weird to see an animated version of yourself? No, yeah, it was. But nice. I think they did a really good job because I think of the simplicity of it. I don't know whether you like the animation or not. But I, I, I really liked it. Did you like the animation? Yeah. Yeah, I think they, I don't know why they don't do more. Oh, well, I do. It's, it was expensive, apparently. Yeah, it's one of the animated, uh, the animators have such a commitment to keeping it as authentic as possible. I just watched uh, Moonbase, and there's a, at the end of episode two, Cyberman gets up from a medical table, and the table it has not been nailed down, so it starts just wobbling terribly in the background. Then the next episode picks up an animation, and instead of fixing that, they animate that table wobbling oh, in the that's background. that's brilliant. That's <laughs> brilliant. I love that. That's, that's exactly how it should be. Yeah. Now, yeah. you ended up playing a companion in a stage play a version of Doctor yes. Who, right? Yeah. Yes. It was uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks and the... Seven, Seven keys, keys to Doomsday. Doomsday. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a Dalek self-help book. <laughs> Seven keys to a successful Doomsday. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> how did, it was with Trevor Martin, right? It was yeah. with Trevor Martin. How did that come about? Just, uh, um, I think it was Terence Dix who just said, I've written this, do you want to do it? Um, and I said, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> um, 
another opportunity uh, to meet a Dalek, actually, was my first opportunity to meet a Dalek. Oh, yeah. Because I didn't work with Daleks in the, um, in the show. So, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was spectacular as a, as a set. It was huge and complicated and much more technical. Um, every, it, it was one of those shows where you couldn't actually, you know Fraser was saying earlier, you know, that Pat could um, transpose a line, you, you, you know, he didn't always get the line exactly, well none of us did, exactly as it was written. And it didn't matter to the actor, that didn't matter. But in seven cases at Keys to Doomsday, you had to say your lines absolutely in order because pretty much every line was a cue for something happening behind, for back projection, for some monster to be flown in, for somebody else to be doing, for lighting, all the way through the show. So it was absolutely imperative that we, there was no room for any sort of bad living or any of that. It was absolutely, you had to be spot on with your lines. And that was quite tense making. I mean, that was quite hard to think that you, have, you really, really have to get, you have to be uh, perfect with your lines. But it was, a, it was a great show, but unfortunately, it came into London at a time when we were having bombs put in letterboxes in Piccadilly Circus. And, those, and of course, nobody's going to bring their children into the West End to see a show. So it didn't last as long as they would have liked it to last. And they did consider taking it on tour. So taking it out of London and taking it around the, the provinces. But the sets were too big to fit into most provincial theatres. So it, it never happened. It never happened. This was a totally new companion and character, right? Uh, yeah, play. totally new. Jenny, I mean, I loved the beginning of the show. And I was talking to Terence Dix about it at a, on a panel, actually, one um, couple of years ago. And I said, I loved that beginning, Terence, that what you did there. I thought it was brilliant. And he said, I hated it. It wasn't my idea. <laughs> um, and what we did was the, the, the boy companion and myself would go front of house, into the bar, by the ticket office, drinking a Coke or some water or whatever, with the audience. Um, uh, standing in a corner. And then the bell would go for five minutes and, and all the audience would walk in and we would walk in with the audience. And we had two seats saved at the back of the theatre. We'd hand in our tickets, just like the audience, and we'd go to our seats at the back of the theatre. And then the lights went down, the music started, the Doctor Who music, the sound of the TARDIS uh, materialising. And eventually, amidst all this smoke, the TARDIS materialised, the doors flew open, and Trevor, as the doctor, came staggering out, saying, help me, help me. And everybody was sitting in the audience like this, and we at the back would go, I'd say, say to the guy, um, that, that man's in trouble. And he'd say, no, shush, no, he's not, he's fine. I'd say, no. No, honestly, I, he's really in trouble. There's something wrong with him, we need to go and help him. No. 
And invariably, because the audience didn't know we were about to get up on stage, actually I got hit over there with somebody's handbag. This <laughs> woman <laughs> turned around and just went, be quiet. <laughs> Imagine how mortified she was. <laughs> when a couple of minutes later, I said, well, I'm going to help him. Ran down, just like this sort of central aisle here, up onto the stage, followed by the boy. We got, we helped him up, took him into the TARDIS, and then we were off on, on our adventure. And all the kids in the audience were thinking, oh, wow. why didn't I, well, you know, if only I'd been two minutes later, I could have gone on. I could have been with a TARDIS. So I think it was a great start, but Terence really didn't like it. Yeah, well, maybe I don't know why. I'd be worried that audience members would just take it upon themselves to join the doctor, and you know, maybe that's it. Well, that would have been reserved. fun, though, yeah. wouldn't it? That would have made for an interesting evening. <laughs> don't see anything wrong with that. Well, you've got a whole new concept. We should do that—the interactional Doctor Who theater. <laughs> yes. See. Yes. All right, guys, don't steal that idea. There's a lot for that. That's for sure. Um, you know, you, we talked uh, in the last session about Big Finish. Uh, I, I love listening to Big Finish audios. Um, and it's interesting that you and uh, Fraser have been paired, I think, twice with Colin Baker, um, rejoining the, the Sixth Doctor. Um, what was that like, switching up Doctors and being a companion to a totally different version of it? It was totally brilliant because, um, well, A, I love Colin. And it, it, it just adds something. It just being with a different doctor is is, is just amazing. Uh, although I got talk, uh, I got shouted out by a fan. I think that the last convention I was at, one of the conventions I've done this year anyway, who was absolutely livid that they would consider putting Zoe with that doctor with Colin's doctor. He thought it was wrong, a bad, awful, awful, awful thing to do. And I thought, I said, I said how sorry I was, but I didn't know quite what to say to him. But I, I didn't think there's anything wrong with us. No. I love the, I'd like to work with all, you know, all of them. Well, that's what I was gonna ask. They've got the license to the new what? series now. Is there a doctor you'd like to be paired with in a, in a dream world? In a dream world. <laughs> David, no. Let's define dream world. Well, clearly, and that I am slightly biased, Matt Smith. Oh, yes. Oh. Did you like Matt Smith? Yeah. yeah. Now, now you had a hand in, in finding well, Matt Smith, right? Well, that's why. I mean, how wonderful would that be to actually work with with Matt? Um, I don't know whether you know, but I, when I was an agent, he was my client. So um, it was just extraordinary when somebody phoned me and said, "You're never going to guess who the you never guess who the next doctor is going to be because I'd retired by then." And I said, "Matt Smith," and I thought, oh. and then when I saw him, uh, and I thought, okay, maybe when I first met Matt, because um, he wasn't an actor, I was he was still at university actually, and I saw him at the National Youth Theatre, and he was doing a play called Master and Margarita, and he was absolutely, I couldn't take my eyes off him. He was so good, and so I asked him afterwards if he wanted to be an actor, and I, I was an agent, and I'd be very interested in 
in talking, looking after him or talking to him, and he said, oh, I do want to be an actor. Yeah, I do want to be an actor. And so he phoned the next day and came in to meet us. And he had the ability to talk to you as though you're the only person in the room. You know, there's, there's nobody else, just you. And it's a very endearing, particularly to a woman, it's very endearing when there's a guy sitting opposite you going, well, yeah, this thing is. Anyway, he, he's just, he was just great. And then he got a job very quickly by sheer luck, as often actors' jobs come by sheer luck, right place at the right time when the Royal Court were looking for someone that could play 16, 17 and do a New York accent. And this casting director said, we, we are so desperate. Have you got anybody? And I said, yeah, Matt Smith. And she said, I don't know who that is. And I said, well, you won't, because I only took him on yesterday. So I haven't got a CV. I haven't got a photo. I have nothing to show you. And she said, I trust you. I trust you. Tell him to come and pick up a script. And this would have been a Friday afternoon. Pick up the script and come in on Monday morning. So I phoned Matt. I thought, and I, and I said, Matt, it's when I've got, um, I've got an interview for you. And he went, bloody hell, that's quick. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, two things first. Well, one thing, really, can you do a New York accent? Because of course I'd lie, I have no idea whether you can <laughs> And he said, yes, I can. And I said, well, go and pick up the script. He went on the Monday. I don't think he'd left the building before she phoned to say, he is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing, definitely got the job. So he got a job really, really, really quickly. And then from then on, it was fighting with casting directors about who was gonna get him his first television. It was bizarre. He went to the National, he went to, you know, he was just, he was an immediate uh, hit, basically. Um, and then when I, I watched him as the doctor, I thought, oh yeah, yeah. You're, you're like Pat, and I did wonder whether, when I first met him, or when I first saw him on the stage, before I knew him, whether there was already a little something about Pat in him, a little quirkiness that I noticed that night. Subconsciously. Yeah, subconsciously, though. That's the next doctor. <laughs> well, that's something I never thought, but maybe, you know, maybe yeah. somewhere it, it was that little bit of Pat that endeared him to me. Did you ever think of like uh, using your connections there to try to get onto the new series with Matt? <laughs> who, who got you this gig, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I didn't because I'd I'd um, I'd retired, um, and he was he was sad, very sad when I said I was uh, retiring, and he he didn't want to stay with the agency when I'd gone, so he went to a new agent. So it was absolutely down to his new agent to, to, that got him Doctor Who. It was nothing to do with me. Well, as an agent, I know uh, in the earlier interview you were talking pretty passionately about you know how actors should be paid, things like that. But no, it, no it, I do get on my high horse. I'm no, so I'm sorry, probably, but it's, very interesting. It's so important. It's it's often the actor that loses out. You know when an equity are guilty of not not really working on behalf of the uh, of the actor which is what, exactly what they should be doing, because they are the actors, you know, the actors, um, uh, what are they called? Union. Union. Yeah. Thank you, I couldn't think of the word. 
Yes, so, you know, that's who they should be yeah. working for. And often it turns out that they're not. And it did, it, did. it made me cross. Well, you were an actor, so you, it, was, it makes sense to be the, have the opportunity to be an advocate for actors. Yes, and I think that's why the clients liked having me as an agent, because I'd been an actor. So it was easy for me to say, I know what it's like when you're waiting for the phone to ring, because I've been there, done that. You know, I know what that feels like, and so I was very, uh, I was always very, very careful to keep actors or, or my clients um, involved and and to know exactly what was going on and what they'd been suggested for. Because all an agent can do is place an actor in front of a casting director and a director. What we can't do is get them the job. That is down to the actor. But it's our job. To give them that, to open that door, so that they are at least being seen by people, it, it's hard. It's really hard. It's it's the it's a long. I used to spend all day at work, and then I'd go back to work in the evening to the theatre. I spent all my time at the theatre, seeing clients, taking casting directors to see people that they may not know. Um, so it was tough. I did it for 15 years, and then. I hit 60 and I thought, you know what, enough, thank you very much, bye-bye. I think you earned it. I recently listened to a Big Finish audio Lords of the Red Planet, and was your daughter in that with you, from what I understand? Oh, yes. Yes, what was that like, working with your daughter? Oh, it was great, it was great. We, we never talk about things, Charlie and I. In fact, somebody said to me at a panel, at a convention, what was it like, um, hearing your daughter play Jenny in Seven Keys to Doomsday on the audio. And I said, I didn't know she had. <laughs> and I didn't, because she never told me. And so this person that had mentioned that went off and bought it at the convention and gave it to me as a gift. And so when I was on my way home in the car, I listened to it and it was bizarre because I thought, I don't remember them ever recording the beginning of this show. That's uh, that's really odd. Until I realised it actually wasn't me. It was Charlie, <laughs> and she does sound wow. very, very like me. But no, it's great working with her. She's much better than I ever was. So she, <laughs> no, she, no, it's really, really fun. But she's your child, so you can still take credit for it. So it, Quite it, right. it works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, how about we take some audience questions here? There's not an extra mic, right? I will uh, take it down to people. I'm sure there's many people sitting in the audience here who have the dream of, who just love to be on Doctor Who. So as a, an agent, you might be able to give them tips. What, how would they possibly get on it someday? Oh, honestly, I have no idea. I mean, do you know what? It is so secretive, the casting that goes on for Doctor Who. It, it's extraordinary. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, that might have changed because I've been retired for 10 years now. So I, I, things may have changed. But certainly when I was still working and Doctor Who was there, it was, all, it was so hard to get people seen. They, most shows, when they're casting them, they send out a breakdown to the agents. And you get a little breakdown of the character and then you can suggest your client accordingly. But they never did that with Doctor Who. Never, ever did that. You'd get a phone call 
but you never really know um, how to put anyone else forward uh, for a part in Doctor Who. And everybody wants to be on Doctor Who. Every actor wants to be in Doctor Who. It, but it was like that back in, back in the 60s, which is why we had such amazing uh, actors in the show. Everybody wanted to be in it. It's just been one of those shows. Extraordinary. So I, I, I couldn't tell anybody how to get into it. Um, I've no idea. My, I'd get into it myself now if I, if I knew how. Anyone else? There's a lady behind you. Hi there. Um, I'm fascinated how you guys can come all the way here, a little Minnesota, all the way from Britain, for these conventions. How, much, how many conventions do you do a year, either in Britain or in uh, foreign countries? Um, I don't, in, in reality, do that many. I mean, if you talk to Fraser, he's somewhere every weekend, pretty much, you know, he just never stopped. But I don't do that many, because I don't live in England anymore, I live in France. And so it's a bit more, um, it's a bit trickier for me. But actually, if I was still in the UK, I could probably do a Doctor Who convention every single weekend, because there's something happening somewhere all over the country every weekend. Um, so you have to, you know, I come and do things for people I've met, like I met Jeff a couple of years ago, and then I got invited to this, and that's how I do my conventions. Um, so it's, it, it, it's a choice for me of, well, I'll go there, but I won't go there, or it, it, this year, funnily enough, I've probably done more American conventions um, than, than any other year, but after this one, I'm having a, a break until um, September when I do one in the UK. Um, so the, for me, the schedule is quite light, um, and and I can, and I'm happy with. I'm really happy with that um, because it, I, I feel I can be a bit fresher um, uh, when I when I do eventually turn up at a convention. Um, but but you talk to Fraser about that, and he he goes somewhere pretty much every weekend. Who was smarter, Zoe or the doctor? And who had the better legs, Zoe or Judy? <laughs> okay, well clearly Zoe was smarter than the doctor. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, you've seen for yourself how infuriated she gets. So that's a, that's a, and you know what? I think Fraser's got better legs. Okay? <laughs> Mine. Honestly, I mean, I said to him when he did his show, was it last night or the night last night? I said to him, God, Fraser, you've still got great legs. <laughs> and he has. He, he really has. And, and I haven't. So, you know, he wins hands down. But please don't tell him I've got this. This is between us, guys. Thank you. you. So. Now, it is funny you mentioned that because I think it was also in the Lords of the Red Planet audio I just listened to. There's a line um, with the doctor and Zoe are working on some sciencey thing, and Jamie wants to know what to do, and uh, the doctor says, "Hand us test tubes and look pretty." So <laughs> that is Jamie's role. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Hi. Hi. I was just wondering. Like what it's like for you to live in France, or why you chose to, to live in France? I think you said you. Um, it's 
culturally, clearly very different than the UK. And the reason I chose France is because my daughter uh, was married to a Frenchman. So my grandchildren are half French. And so over the years, I've got to know France very well. It's very, very beautiful, France. If you've never been and you get an opportunity, it's a very beautiful country. And although it's only at its nearest point, 23 miles from the UK, across the channel, the minute you get off culturally, it is so completely different. The French have a, I don't know how to put this politely. I do love them, but they do have an air of um, self-belief. <laughs> I don't quite know how to say that in a nice way. But they do, they, they, they still hold on to their really French, you know. Uh, yeah, they're lovely, they're lovely and I love it there. Um, but that's the reason I decided to go and live in France, because although it was nothing to do with living near my daughter or anything like that, because actually she was living in China at the time. So it was just something I, I got to know and love the country. It's very beautiful, and I thought, when I retire, I'm going to go and live in France, and that's what I did. And I have no regrets at all. And now we have this massive vote in the UK, of course, of whether to stay in Europe or not, which is a, which is a massive thing. It's never happened in history. Uh, nobody can tell us, no politician, despite what they say, can tell us whether it's a good idea to leave or stay, because nobody really knows. And they've given the vote to the general public, who, who know even less. And so it's become, a, it's become quite a nasty, a bit like yours at the moment, actually. <laughs> it's become as nasty as that, between the, 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 what they've now called Brexit, you know, Br British exit from the EU, and, and whether to leave or stay. And it has become very nasty. And we have the vote on the 23rd of June. And I guess people automatically think I'm going to vote to stay because I live in France. Um, but I honestly don't know. I think it's a bigger picture than that. And I don't approve of um, putting up borders back, putting back up borders between countries, to me, leads to strife. And we should be opening rather than shutting, shutting down our countries and stopping immigration, all the things that... I mean, Trump would be definitely for a Brexit, that's sure. He would want us to leave. Um, and I don't envy you your vote either. Do, do you want to run? Because, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ask that to Zoe, you should say, of course, without a question of a doubt. Okay, you mentioned earlier that if you could get back into Doctor Who, you would. How about. Wendy Padbury, the first female doctor. But I don't think I could leave Zoe behind. That's the trouble. If somebody said to me you could do a line with Peter Capaldi as Zoe, you'd have to tie me down to stop me being there. But whether I want to be the female, I'm in two minds about, I know the ladies aren't going to like this, but I'm in two minds about a female doctor. I just don't know whether it's a good idea. What do you think? Do you think there should be a... Do you think small people? <laughs> yes, clearly think. I disagree with you. Oh, you agree with me? Uh, no, oh, you disagree I'm with me? agreeing with the statement that there could be a few people. Okay, okay. I don't know. 
Who would it be? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be the doctor, I want to be Zoe, that's all. <laughs> well, considering she's brighter anyway, what's the <laughs> Do you have a favourite memento or photo from your time at the show? No, at various conventions I've heard people, companions say, oh, I managed to take that little thing and put it in my bag at the end of film or something. They've all got something. I must have been such a good girl. I have absolutely nothing. The only thing I did ever take was a costume that um, I loved which was designed by the designer and, I, and the BBC, I asked the BBC if, if I could have it and they said no. Um, and they said the only way you can have it is if you pay for the, if you pay for it basically. So I went shopping with the designer and we bought this pale lemon leather and I had this costume made, one of the costumes and I can't remember which story I wore it in. Anyway, it's got little laces down the front and trousers with laces down the leg. And I had it, it was made up, and then, so I bought the leather, and then it was made in the BBC wardrobe department. They, they made it. Uh, I wore it, the first time I wore it, I was crawling along a corridor, surprise, surprise, um, that was not, the paint wasn't yet dry, and I got silk paint all over it, first time I wore it. Didn't stop me taking it home, and I did take it home, and I wore it once, when Fraser and I were asked to do some public appearance, which was, Probably our only public appearance we did um, at Selfridges. I'm not sure what it was for even. And I wore it then, and then I never wore it. And I, I kept it and kept it, and then I thought, do you know what? I'm never going to wear this. And I took it to Oxfam. <laughs> Can you imagine how I regret that now? <laughs> but that's it. that was the only thing I ever got from the programme. Um, nothing else. It was from Seeds of Death. Seeds of Death, that's exactly right, yes. Yes, exactly right. Um, what was your favorite story, like as a story, or just favorite one in the film? Uh, I think favorite story is Mind Robber, actually, only because it was so utterly different to anything else we'd done before. And also, Fraser wasn't there for a week. You know, <laughs> perfect. Um, no, it, it, I, I just loved the, I, I loved the wackiness of the story. I loved, in fact, that in my head is one of the ones that I think is better in my head than it is. I used to say to people, oh, see the, the, the forest of letters. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And then when I look at it, I think, oh, it's a bit wobbly and it doesn't look quite as good as I remember it. But the story I thought was, I thought was fantastic. And that is my, definitely my favorite, followed by the invasion, and followed by War Games, I think. I always thought War Games was uh, 10 episodes, and maybe probably four of them needn't have been there, but uh, um, a lot of padding. But actually watching it, I think it does pretty much, it just about holds up as a, as a 10 episode. It could probably have been done in eight episodes, but other than that, uh, yeah. They were all great to film as well, by the way, all of them. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for taking my question. Um, um, have you ever heard of, or would you approve of, or be part of the possible reenactment of missing stories until, of course, they find the missing stories in some country? What? Just redoing them as we are now? Sure. Yeah. Ooh. 
I don't know. Have you asked Fraser that? I'd love to. Oh, Fraser would be up for it. Definitely Fraser. If Fraser's up for it, I'm definitely up for it. Yeah, yeah. What a brilliant idea. Hi, Wendy. Uh, I'm just curious, I always thought that when Jamie and Zoe left, it was the saddest, one of the saddest companion departures ever. If it's sad for me, how did you react when you found out that you were going to have your minds erased? And what was it like filming that, that goodbye scene? Um, filming the goodbye scene was really sad. Filming that last episode was very, very sad. But we ha I had made the decision to leave with Pat and Fraser. Um, and I didn't want to go on with somebody else only because as much as I loved working on Doctor Who, I didn't think it would or could ever be the same without Pat and Fraser. Um, and I thought it was better to go then. Um, I was pleased in as much as I wasn't killed off or anything. <laughs> you know. And now thanks to Big Finish, you know, Zoe's managing to try and remember some of those memories that have been wiped. And so, it's Doctor Who, anything is possible. Um, so, um, so I was very, very pleased, that, but, but it, nonetheless, it was, it was terribly sad. Terribly, terribly sad. I was wondering, uh, how did your, how did your uh, children get introduced to Doctor Who? Did they start with your episodes or your ones? They didn't really. They didn't really get introduced to Doctor Who at all. Um, it was more, more by accident. Um, the interesting one is my, are my grandchildren who have become involved with Doctor Who because my daughter was working for BBC Worldwide in Hong Kong and she was running their global website for teaching children foreign language. And they'd set up this office in Hong Kong and her, her concentration was the teaching of small Chinese children English. And it was Joe's idea, seeing as she was working for the BBC, to try and persuade the BBC to use Doctor Who as a teaching aid. And so she was having, it was really bizarre. Um, so they've got cartoons and all sorts done. They've got a doctor and companion. Because I was saying to her, are you having a doctor and a companion? She said, yeah, I was going, hello. Hello, I was a companion. You know, think about your mother. Um, and she said, oh no, I didn't think we are going with Zoe. And I was like, oh, all right, fair enough. But I knew, I knew for a couple of years that this was all happening behind the scenes and I wasn't allowed to say anything. And she was having meetings with people that I know from BBC Worldwide, but I wasn't saying to them, I know you're going to Hong Kong next week to meet my daughter, and they weren't saying anything to me. And then. It, I think around about the 50th celebration, it seemed, everybody seemed to know about it. And there's me being as quiet as can be, never having, because Joe said to me, you, you cannot tell anybody, because the BBC, you know what they're like, it's all this secretive thing, you cannot. And I said, I won't, I won't, I promise. And I did it, and then I went to this um, little party at the 50th celebration, everybody's going, I'm just off to meet your daughter Jo in Hong Kong. We're having a meeting about the cartoon and the storm. We're, I'm script writing with your daughter. And so that's how my grandchildren got into, Do into Doctor Who. My children were never really Doctor Who fans. Um, and then when um, my grandchildren happened to be in the UK when Peter Capaldi's first episode was going out and being screened, and I said to them, do you fancy going to the Odeon Leicester Square, a huge cinema, and seeing 
the first episode, Peter Capaldi, and they said, oh yeah, and my grandson said, will there be popcorn? I said, yeah, there'll be popcorn. Oh yeah, I'd like to go. So, so well, I was so naive, so I'm so naive sometimes. I went with um, Matt Evenden, met me outside, if you, any of you know Matt, um, and I, all my family came up. We all went up on the bus, actually, from Charlie's house. And we all went to this cafe next door to the, the cinema having a coffee. And then Matt came along. And he said, OK, um, we probably need to go and get our tickets now and go in. And so myself, my grandchildren, Kitty and Matt, and Matt left my, the rest of my family, and we all waved goodbye, walked out of the cafe, and of course, there were hundreds of Doctor Who fans. And, I, and they were coming over saying, oh, Zoe, 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 can we have your autograph, please? Wendy, can we have your autograph? And my grandkids were like, huh? <laughs> what is this? Uh, and then my grandson, so I was signing autographs, and they, the rest of my family were laughing. And my grandkids were over and around. And when we got inside, Matt said to me, Min, you're really famous. And I said, Matt, I've been trying to tell you that for years. <laughs> uh, anyway, we went in, and I said to them we wouldn't stay for the question and answer session. It was going to be Jenna, uh, um, Stephen Moffat, and Peter. Because um, I thought they, would, they perhaps wouldn't be interested in that. But I didn't realize that straight after the screening, which we all loved, um, but the, the, Zoe Ball came on stage and there, and there was the immediate question and answer session. So we found ourselves in it. And also uh, Cybermen started appearing from every corner of the theatre of the cinema. And the, my grandkids were like, oh, what? What's that? And I was going to Cybermen. So they were absolutely enamoured. And so we stayed for the whole thing and listened to the, the question and answer sessions and stayed right through it. it was, it was amazing. So that's how, and, that, and the grandchildren do do watch Doctor Who now. Yeah, they do, and they're very supportive. And my daughter, sorry, just very quickly, my daughter came to Long Island last November. Um, she'd never ever been. This is my my grandchildren's mum, my oldest daughter, and she'd never been to a Doctor Who convention. She had no idea what I did. Couldn't quite work out why I said. I'd been away for a weekend and I was exhausted when I got home. She said, why? You've been staying in a hotel. Why is it exhausting? <laughs> anyway, she came to New York and afterwards, um, she stayed in my room and afterwards she said to me, I've got two things to say. A, that was amazing. Uh, she was absolutely enamored. She went to every panel. I didn't see her. She's, I say to her, we'll have lunch at 12. She said, where's my program? No, I can't. There's a panel at 12. I want to listen to it. She was completely and utterly hooked. And then she said two things. A, I understand now why you're tired. And B, I'm so very proud of you because that's amazing what you do at those conventions. And that is just wonderful to see. So, yeah, she, she, yeah, if that's, I can stop talking now. Sorry. <laughs> I do just want to ask you one, one last thing because we we're talking about the 50th anniversary of uh, Patrick Troughton's era here as in Doctor Who and I've recently been re-watching a number of them and I think Patrick Troughton 
he has just that childlike innocence, his ability to turn on a dime and be serious and maybe even a little dangerous. He's just, he's a really incredible performer. And I think sometimes it's probably because of these lost episodes that he's not like a, a Tom Baker, David Tennant status doctor. But I see that really changing a lot at these conventions. And I just think it's awesome that you were here and you're a part of bringing that back. Well, thank you very much. And I agree with you about Pat. And you, you need to listen to Colin and Peter Davison. They all think that Pat was the doctor. And um, one of the reasons for that, not only because of his talent, but um, because if he'd been rubbish as the doctor, that we wouldn't be here. You know, they would have taken it off air. Um, so it was a risk they did with this regeneration idea. And thank God they got Patrick, because um, he's led us on to all these years later. Well, thank you so much, Wendy. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.